Welcome back to the program. As we debate yet again America's role in the world, this time in the Middle East, it's worth noting that there is most assuredly a deep strain of isolationism that courses throughout American history. Perhaps nowhere has that been more apparent than in the run-up to the Second World War. Even as Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, only one in 40 Americans thought that America should get involved. This was the world that FDR faced as he tried to reshape America's vision and its place in the world. Perhaps Roosevelt himself said it best in his nomination acceptance speech in June of 1936. Let's listen. There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. And so it did. Even for Roosevelt, though, this was an evolving position. But how would he lead? How would he persuade America? That's the subject of a fascinating new book by my guest, Michael Fullylove. Michael Fullylove is the executive director of the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, a Rhodes Scholar and a former Prime Minister's advisor. He writes widely on global issues, and it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Fullylove here to talk about his new work, Rendezvous with Destiny, how Franklin D. Roosevelt and five extraordinary men took America into the war and into the world. Michael Fullylove, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delight to have you here. One of the things that is so interesting about this story is that Roosevelt's position over time evolved, that that he started out with, with that same kind of almost isolationist strain that is so prevalent in America, and his position evolved dramatically over time. I don't know if I'd describe him as, as isolationist, but I think you're right that he certainly was not, hadn't decided in September 1939 when Germany invaded Poland that America should enter the war. What he did feel was that America should be outward-looking. He felt that events in Europe mattered to America. He felt that it was important that America think of its interests and its responsibilities in a global way. And I think what happened over these two years is that his policy hardened um, and he, he, he deepened America's involvement in the war in stages, always in response to events. But if the process of that hardening of that policy was gradual. It was also relentless. And increasingly, he was, I think, of the view that America would get involved. And he he was able to bring the country with him through this very uh, complicated and subtle diplomatic and public relations campaign. When did he realize that he was going to have to do this, that events in Europe were moving along in such a way that he knew he needed to bring the country to a different point of view? Well, I think, um, for example, after, I think one of the real turning points was the fall of France in July of 1940. I think this really shocked Americans and the world that a country as, as, as great and powerful as France would fall so quickly before the German advance. And at that time, while Bill Donovan, um, a Republican war hero from the First World War, was sent by Roosevelt to London to assess whether Britain was worth um, uh, uh, helping. And he came back and said, 
that yes, despite the reports from Ambassador Joe Kennedy, the arch isolationist in London, that, that Britain could hold on and Roosevelt really the process of aiding the Allies really kicked in, I think, uh, after the fall of France and after that report from Bill Donovan. The other thing that's so interesting is that in the 1940 election, that Wendell Wilkie was an internationalist Republican and had really prevailed over the isolationists in the Republican Party at the time. Yes, the Republican Party was deeply isolationist at the period, in, in the period, and Wilkie was a lifetime Democrat who switched to the Republicans so that he could run for president against FDR. He was a, a lawyer and a, and a capitalist, um, and a great, uh, broad-shouldered, broad-minded individual. And he was the only person in the Republican race who really identified Hitler as a threat to American interests. And just as he put his name, threw his name into the ring, um, Hitler started, you know, Hitler first invaded the Low Countries and then conquered France. And, and Wilkie became the Republican candidate really by public acclamation against the wishes of most of the party bosses because he seemed to be the only candidate in the Republican side of things who took, um, Hitler seriously. Uh, and he became a great international, he was a great internationalist. And when he lost to, to Roosevelt, um, and announced that he would go, that, and Wilkie announced that he would go to London on a fact-finding mission. Roosevelt pounced on this, and he invited Wilkie to the White House. He gave him a personal letter to Churchill, quoting a very stirring Longfellow poem. And in doing so, he turned Wilkie into an instrument of his diplomacy. He 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 became an expression of bipartisan support. Um, for Britain, but also he was Roosevelt was able to use Wilkie to wedge the isolationists and to marginalise the isolationists in the Republican Party and move the centre of American political debate towards the interventionist pole, which is where he wanted it to be. Talk about that letter, because it was also something that was very important to Churchill and gave Churchill a, a greater sense of, of where America was. Very much so. Well, perhaps I can read the letter. It's sure. very quick. Um, he, Roosevelt had Wilkie in the White House and he, he, no one knew where he came up with this idea but he reached for a piece of White House stationery and he wrote this letter which he addressed to Churchill and the letter went like this Dear Churchill, Wendell Wilkie will give you this he is truly helping to keep politics out over here I think this verse applies to your people as it does to us Sail on, O ship of state Sail on, O union strong and great Humanity with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. As ever yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And Churchill was moved by the letter, of course. He saw it as evidence of Roosevelt's bona fides. Um, and he, he actually uh, uh, used the letter in his own speeches and his own broadcasts to America. It became a, a metaphor for the special relationship, the Anglo-American relationship, and it was freighted with some of the emotion that that, that bilateral relationship took on. This notion of, of sending envoys, and we've talked about Bill Donovan, we've talked about Wendell Wilkie, yeah. they were three others that we'll talk about. Th yeah. This idea of, of working outside of the State Department in normal bureaucratic channels, talk about why that appealed to Roosevelt. Well, I think there were a few reasons. One was that he just didn't trust the Republican-leaning um, State Department as he saw the career Foreign Service officials. He didn't think that they were very effective anyway. He thought they were striped pants, 
kooky pushers who weren't muscular diplomats in the way that he liked. He didn't like some of his own appointees like Joe Kennedy. Um, he was someone who craved intelligence and information and yet he wasn't getting it. Um, and of course, in those days, it was very unusual, would have been very unusual for, for a president to travel, especially in wartime, to travel abroad. And Roosevelt himself was even more limited because he, he was trapped in a wheelchair. So he turned to these unorthodox diplomats, um, and you know most of them had no diplomatic experience at all. Harry Hopkins was a social worker from Sioux City, Iowa. Averill Harriman was a railroad heir. Um, you know, uh, so most of them were not people who were skilled or experienced at diplomacy, but each of them had something that Roosevelt felt he could use, either a position in the Republican Party or an intimate relationship with him or, 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 or some, some characteristic or feature that he felt that he could put to use. The other aspect is the degree to which they were all out there kind of on their own, that that, that yes. wasn't part of an organization. I mean, they reported directly to Roosevelt, and they mm. really had no superstructure to operate in. No, it's it's remarkable, isn't it, when you think back and you think how, uh, you know, how a Secretary of State travels now in his own plane with a massive entourage and security, and the same is the case even for for special envoys and ambassadors, U.S. ambassadors. But in these days, most of these guys travel by themselves. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, they reported not through the State Department, but, but in letters that they wrote on hotel stationery or perhaps through, through um, naval signals uh, through the U.S. Navy because Roosevelt was, wanted to lock the State Department out of their communications. It was a very sort of a ramshackle operation in many ways, and yet it worked. And um, uh, I'll tell you one thing. These guys had fun. Um, you know, Roosevelt said to Churchill, it's fun being in the same decade as you. And I think, I think uh, some of these envoys would have said the same thing. I mean, they, they managed to, you know, perhaps they weren't coddled by all that bureaucracy and they were able to form personal connections. And most of them knew they were living in the most exciting as well as the most dangerous and tragic moments of their lives. Was there a shared common vision that they all had that Roosevelt had infused them with? Or was this something that, that was Roosevelt's vision and he was simply using them as players on the chessboard? I think that they had, you know, they, they weren't a formal block. They, there weren't that many connections between them. There were some. I mean, Harry Hopkins and Avril Harriman were very close, for example, and there were other connections between them. But... I, but it, you know roosevelt was the was the 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 axis around which they they orbited um and ultimately it was roosevelt who selected them it was roosevelt who gave them their missions i think if there was a commonality it was that they were all given towards a broad uh, definition of american interests they all certainly had an had an internationalist leaning uh, none of them were isolationists. They felt that America should play an important role in the world. I think that was their their leaning. They were different in many respects, very different individuals. Some of them were high-born. Some of them were, were low-born. Uh, some of them were very beautifully tailored, like Sumner Wells. Some of them were scruffy and dandruffy, like Harry Hopkins. But I think all of them shared a relationship of... of of some kind with Roosevelt and a sort of an internationalist mindset that he felt he could put to use. They also had this ability to freelance in terms of policy, something that's very hard to imagine today. 
And the reason that they could do that was that Roosevelt was happy with um, servants of his who got out ahead of him. And in fact, Eleanor was a model in this respect. When Eleanor, you know, Eleanor was really more liberal in a domestic sense than I think FDR was. And, and, but, that, but FDR could use that. And she could say things that he may not be able to say. And if he was questioned about it, he'd just say in a press conference, well, look, that's, that's my missus. You know, I don't tell her what to say. And Roosevelt was a bit the same with these envoys, especially because they were informal. They weren't, they weren't um, you know, he didn't seek the advice and consent of the Senate in appointing them. Um, he could disavow them if they became difficult. At one point, Joe Kennedy was very was furious at Roosevelt for sending Bill Wild, Bill Donovan, and Roosevelt said a bit unconvincingly, "Well, you know, it, it was nothing to do with me. I mean, he was an appoint, appointee of the Secretary of Navy, and but he could sort of get away with that because because of the the very informality of the position of special envoy. It was something." You know, he would say to the press, you know, this is this is not a big job. He's just going over. Harry Hopkins is just going over to London to say hello to a few friends of mine. He could he could play up their missions or play them down as as suited his political purposes at that moment. To what extent were they all privy to what the others were doing? To what extent was there a sense of them having an idea of what others were up to? Well, of course, they were aware of each other, but. Um, but I think Roosevelt played his cards close to his chest. And, uh, you know, Roosevelt said once to one of his cronies, you know, never let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Roosevelt had what one of his speechwriters called a heavily forested interior. He never put down in writing what he thought about anything. He never wrote a memoir. It's, it's hard enough even for historians uh, with access to every piece of of evidence that one can imagine to piece together what Roosevelt was thinking. So, so Roosevelt was a hard nut to work out. Um, and, and I think some of these envoys themselves had to struggle away and try to divine what his purposes were. But I think the way that as a historian one does it is when you stand back a bit and you look past the fact that he might have said one thing to, to one advisor and something else to another, in a sort of Clintonian way, when you look back at, at, at his actions over the long term, you can discern quite easily a clear and, e and inexorable direction of his policy, and that direction was to take America deeper and deeper into the world and deeper and deeper into involvement in the war. And talk about some of the specific ways in which the information he got from the advisors gave him more and more confidence to do that. A lot of the information that the envoys brought back really supported what Roosevelt wanted to do in the first place, which was to engage more deeply in the world. Exactly, and I think a good um, example of this is in summer of 1941, when uh, Germany turned on the Soviet Union, which had previously been its partner and invaded Russia, and most of Washington believed that Russia would fall before the, the, the Wehrmacht in the same way that France had fallen. But Roosevelt had a, uh, you know, was sort of, had a more positive inclination in general. And he, he liked the idea, I think, of helping the Soviets at least to hold out against um, the Germans until the winter closed in. And he sent Hopkins over 
to see if he could get some information to confirm that hunch because Russia was a mystery to Roosevelt. The ambassador, it had been you know, many, many months since the ambassador had had any exposure to the leading figures in the Kremlin. Um, it was hard for America to get much intelligence on what the Soviet Union was like and Hopkins became the first significant Westerner to meet with Stalin after the German invasion of Russia and he came back convinced that Stalin was, would never make a compromise peace with Hitler and that the Red Army would, would fight to the death if only because Stalin insisted on it and that maybe, just maybe, the Red Army might surprise the world and that helped to give Roosevelt confidence even though most of his advisers were counselling against aiding the Soviet Union and he decided to extend aid to the Soviet Union and I think in that case both Hopkins and, Stalin, and, and Roosevelt, I should say, turned out to be right. How critical were these envoys and the advice that they gave Roosevelt, how critical were they in what ultimately became the post-war framework, the things that people like Atchison and George Kennan and Truman were able to do after the war? Well, I think that the, the way that America entered the war affected the way it emerged from the war is the way I would put that. I think because America entered the war in a united way, because Roosevelt was able, obviously with the help of the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, but because Roosevelt, instead of rushing into the war and taking Americans into the war in a way that they felt divided and angry about it, as they did after the First World War, because he was able to bring the country with him by using these envoys, America entered the war ready for the fight, united, Basically, most of the country convinced that they needed to be in this. And therefore, when they emerged from the war as, a, as, as the greatest, as the most powerful country in the world, I think that their mindset was tuned in to an internationalist one. So although these other figures, I think, became more, more critical, um, you know, Atchison and, and George Kennan and, and George Marshall and Truman, of course, these figures really set set the policy, um, the, the post-war policy, and created the conditions for American, America to prevail over the long term in the Cold War. I think it was Roosevelt and his representatives who enabled that by taking America into the war, by defeating isolationism, um, and by, by creating the coalition of the United States, the Soviet Union, and the British Empire that would ultimately, defeat the, that ultimately lead to the defeat of the dictators. The other thing that it says so powerfully about Roosevelt is the confidence he had in himself to manage this. I mean, we've seen in subsequent administrations, even in the current administrations, attempts to use envoys, independent envoys, in, in, a, pro, in a diplomatic process, but never to the degree that Roosevelt did. He had an incredible optimism and um you know, he had an optimistic disposition. He had a, an enormous amount of, of self-confidence. Um, and he just felt he could carry people with him. And, and he could. And you think, of, um, you think of some of the arguments that he successfully prosecuted. I mean, Lend-Lease itself was an extraordinary argument. He was basically saying to Americans, we don't have to give this aid to the, the Allies. We can lend it to them. And they can return it to us when they're finished with it. Now, of course, no one wants a return bullet, you know, a used bullet returned to them or a used tank or a used warship. But somehow through force of personality, through charm, through laughter and cheerfulness and optimism, um, and his great persuasive ability in those fireside chats and that, those, that deluge of speeches and messages, 
uh, Roosevelt was able to make these arguments to the American people in a way that they were convinced. Talk about what kind of pushback he got from the bureaucracy, from the State Department, from more traditional channels. Well, the State Department was outraged by these envoys, and the, the diplomatic archives are full of, of very uh, appalled notes from aristocratic diplomats in America and even in, in London as well about who are these people and what do they know about diplomacy and why are they coming here and how should we receive them. Um, the military, I think, um, had different fears, and that is that the military had been really starved of resources by the Congress throughout the 1930s, and the Congress had passed the Neutrality Acts, which were intended to fence America off from the war. Um, American, the American army only just snuck into the top 20 armies um, uh, in the late 1930s. So, so after, especially after the fall of France, Roosevelt moved to rearm and to remobilise, and of course he, he created the first peacetime draft, selective service, to draft young American men into the military. But the last thing, in a way, the military wanted to do was to give their precious arms to the British military or the Soviet military or the Australian military, for that matter. So they resisted it, and Roosevelt had to fight you know, all sorts of bureaucratic battles in cabinet, um, and, and these envoys also play, played a role in really beating the, the American military around the heads and saying, no, you have to, you have to send this aid to, to, to the Allies because Roosevelt was very clear-sighted and he realised that, that it was in American interests to, for the British, for the French initially, for the British, for the Soviets and others to resist the dictators, that by, he could use those countries as proxies until America was ready to enter the war, but first of all, they had to be armed. And as you said before, it was the way in which Roosevelt did this, the, the united way that he was able to bring the country together, that really set the groundwork for the transformation of America as a global power after the war. That's right. And, you know, Roosevelt got as much criticism for, for moving too swiftly uh, for moving too slowly, I should say, as he did for moving too swiftly. There were a lot of hawks in his administration, including some of his envoys, such as Averill Harriman, who felt that Roosevelt was taking too long, just as people on the other side of the fence thought that he was, he was a dictator and an adventurer who was getting America much too quickly into the war. But I think Roosevelt probably assessed the mood of the country correctly, and he avoided sudden moves and abrupt shifts American involvement under his leadership in the war deepened in stages and always in response to events. So something bad would happen in Europe and Roosevelt would ratchet up the pressure, he'd give a, a forward-leaning speech, he'd, he'd extend naval patrols in the Atlantic or he'd send an envoy off to Europe. But if the process was gradual, it was relentless. And with each reversal abroad and each advance at home, U.S. policy toward the dictators got harder and harder. Michael Fullylove, the book is Rendezvous with Destiny, how Franklin D. Roosevelt and five extraordinary men took America into the war and into the world. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 